Hey, hey, everyone. It's Ian Bailey. I hope you are well. This is a little mini mini episode that should serve as a bridge between the previous episode about Deborah and her victory and the next topic of male-female interaction and relationships. I wanted to bring some practical applications of the uh, judges, the Shoftim ideas that we have been sharing, show how they direct, directly relate to our society and good advice, and tie up a few loose ends from the previous chapters. So I found this incredible study that was done. Um, it's a, it's, it's a summarized in a book called Sex and Culture. Forgive my language here. Um, it's an Oxford social anthropologist, J.D. Unwin. It's a summary of a summary. It's a summary of his research, seven volumes. He seems to actually not be someone who is religious. Uh, he seems to have scientists over his religion. But nevertheless, he's being extremely objective about society. There's a summary of the summary on the website kirkdurston.com in an article entitled, Why Sexual Morality May Be Far More Important Than You Ever Thought. So, in this book... He lays out how when societies begin to get rid of uh, sexual restraint and morality, that culture begins to fall away. 86 culture, cultures were analyzed. Some of the main points here. Increased uh, sexual constraints. Again, excuse my language. I'll try to use the word intimacy. Either before or after marriage led to flourishing cultures. There you go, uh, I didn't live in the Victorian era, but in our uh, American society, Western world, a lot of these sexual restraints are given a bad name. Obviously, I'm an Orthodox Jew. I have uh, cousins and family that are different types of Christians, and people actually do flourish when they control their intimacy impulses. Number two, the data reveal the single most important correlation with the flourishing of a culture was whether prenuptial chastity was required or not. Societies that had chastity before marriage, not engaging in premarital relations, flourished. Now again, if someone did this type of behavior, this is not a reason to be self-critical. Don't beat yourself up. God has infinite mercy, tremendous mercy and love. People can always do repentance. Don't beat yourself up. Don't let anyone say anything to you. They can take a flying leap. That you have a connection directly with God, and God loves you. God fights for your um, being adjudicated righteous every single day. So we're not trying to condemn here. We're just trying to speak about how no one should be embarrassed or feel shame if they have a constraint in terms of intimacy. And there's always room for repentance. The highest flourishing culture was a combination of prenuptial chastity with absolute monogamy. People not philandering. Oh, big surprise there. Um, rationalist cultures that had this type of constraint for three generations exceeded in all areas. Literature, art, science, furniture, architecture, engineering, agriculture, etc. Only three cultures attained this level, but they all flourished in some capacity. When strict chastity before marriage was not the norm, within three generations, three generations. Rational thinking and flourishing diminished. When there was total sexual freedom, there was a precipitous decline in society, etc. 
see the article over there, a summary of a summary. This is something that the Jewish tradition has had for a long time. Other religious traditions knew. I have an incredible quote here. So the, the Gemara, the Talmud that we have it, is a Jewish uh, discussion books of the law, how we conclude the law. There's a book called Sanhedrin that speaks about the judicial system. Judicial system. On 63b, it says, Israel only worshipped idols to permit forbidden intimate relationships in public. Pretty crazy, huh? The Margoliat Hayam writes down, listen to this. There's a tradition from the hands of the early rabbis, the Gaonim, meaning around 300 to 600, 700 early rabbis, comparatively, mouth to mouth, meaning word of mouth from Moses, our teacher, Moshe, the man who stood at Mount Sinai, the theophany at Mount Sinai, all, all the, you know, the three major Abrahamic religions recognize this moment. God spoke to Moses directly and told Moses, Every single form of idol worship, says Margolia Sayam, needed some sort of service that included forbidden intimate relationships. Huh. We know people bow down to idols. They believed in different deities. They would help them. It was a mistake. It was a way to get rid of the real God. Blasphemy. But intertwined in all of them was not just religious, sorry, not, not just sexual, not just sexual abrogation of rules. Divine, sexual service, intimate service, and this is wild. And they actually have found sacred prostitution. They have found people engaging in intimate swapping and relationships. It's not a surprise. It's only a surprise that it's so prevalent, but we know it exists. This is the, this is the backdrop of what we're studying in Shoftim. This is something that people are studying and proving now. To be strict with certain things is not strict at all. That's our English, English lexicon that's been messed up. It's actually reasonable to put our desires secondary to our intellect, but keeping those desires around, you know, there's a balance there. People should not get rid of that. It's a beautiful bonding act that one should have in a certain context. Refraining from it brings freshness and connection, and a person doesn't devolve into the road to perdition. As I mentioned in the introduction, you know, when people have desire, they can balance that desire with some enjoyment and some control or abstinence, temporary abstinence from it, including also food, not just intimate relationships, other desires. Or they can keep upping their game with desire. There's a sentence in uh, Devarim, Deuteronomy, Laharbos Harava Latzamea, to add thirsty. No, to add hunger to the thirsty. What does that mean? So the Ramban, Nachmanides, also a medieval commentator, writes that if someone keeps giving into their desires, they engage in progressively more perverse behavior. And again, I believe a passage in Vayikra Leviticus is the individual's road to perdition, getting rid of God, getting rid of religion. So when people keep getting more corrupt, they end up throwing away God. God forbid, and having idols. They end up in the road to intimacy as part of the idolatry. Part of idolatry is self-harm and death worship. Part of idolatry is intimacy, giving into one's desires in an imbalanced fashion. This directly leads to a destruction of society. And that is why so much of idol worship is mentioned in the book, the Talmudic book of Sanhedrin, 
because it destroys the structure of the judicial system as well as society. It's not only mentioned in the book called Abodazara, called idolatrous service. So, related, I believe that something very subtle relates to this uh, general topic. Let's call it secular opinion, secular knowledge versus religious knowledge. Way back in the book of Shamos, Exodus, there's a man named Jethro, Yisro, also called Heber Kani. He has up to seven names. It mentions that he came to the Jewish people. He seems to have converted according to Jewish tradition. And he leaves and goes back to his own land. And it's even called Midian. Unbelievable. The, the, the nation of Midian, who we're about to talk about with Gideon, no rhyming intended, heavily relates to being anti-Moses, anti-Deborah, anti-Gideon. It's Netzach, evil Netzach. It's evil investigative religious faculty, the Tuma of it. Midian are the ones who send the princesses to seduce the Jewish people to get them away from their religion. Moses is the anti-Midian. He's the religious intellectual archetype and manifestation. He's actually buried across from Peor. He doesn't just fight these Midianites. His grave is across from a place called Beit Peor, the house of Peor. Peor is an idol where people would defecate and go to the bathroom there. Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz, this rabbi writes, it's not only, idolatry is not only bowing down to gold and wood, stone. It is, each one of them is symbolic. I would say it's a, each one is a negative emotion. It's part of the unco unconscious mind, collective unconscious archetypes. When someone does that, it's like a child abrogating responsibility, just showing their bottom regions and defecation. Um, in a similar fashion, you know, Pa'or did not just abrogate responsibility with the latrine issues, but with sexual immorality, with intimacy. And that is the anti-religion. That is something that is most poignant. However, I believe uh, Yisro Jethro gives us a, a very unique lesson with what I relate to what's called Yisod, relate to what I call something that's connective. Uh, it's an attribute that can appreciate quote unquote secular knowledge. Nothing is actually nothing is actually secular. Everything is the wisdom of God or the destruction thereof. But I believe if you look at Jethro's personality, he's like the wor world's first management consultant. He comes along and he sees the sort of big picture. He uses these quote unquote you know mundane secular tools of efficiency to show Moses how to manifest the law in a different way. The law is the same. Here's how you manifest it in a different fashion. And he goes back over there to be in the quote-unquote secular world because he appreciated the secular world. Moses found religion as absolute truth. Even though he lived in Pharaoh's palace and he went to live in different countries in the world, his, his connection was one through absolute truth. Whereas Jethro served all the other idols and religions of the world till he exhaustively came to the truth. There's a famous Midrash passage that, that basically says Moses wants his children to be in a religious Jewish school. And Jethro says, hey, it's important that they look uh, learn a little bit about 
uh, idolatry, ashram. Let's they need to they need to go out to go in. You know what? What's a greater person? Somebody who's religious from birth, or someone who's um, been challenged? They were secular. Baltashuva. They come back and they're repenting. Really, it depends on the person and the personality. There's no true answer. Yes, I know the Jewish passage that no one can stand in the place of a person who does repentance. But you have to understand that in context. I understand. Someone who does repentance has a great amount of merit on their side. See over there, but I digress. Yisro, Jethro, his people, the Caney, are constantly hanging out next to a nation called Amalek. We've mentioned the Amalekites. Amalekites, they are deconstructionists. They're people who are so open-minded, their brains fell out. They hate everything. So someone can be inclusive of many different wisdoms to take the nuggets out of it, or they could be so inclusive of everything that nothing is sacred. Those are flip sides of what I call yesod, flip sides, flip sides of connecting disparate elements together, of appreciating secular knowledge. So, in Judges 1.16, the children of the Canaanites, Moses' father-in-law, finally move from the city of Date Palms, which is Jericho, Yericho, with the children of Judah in the wilderness of Judah in the south. They finally feel like they can live in Israel and not have to usurp this quote-unquote secular from the outside world to bring that wisdom there. They can come to Israel and feel safe around the kingship of Judah and be settled that they can siphon off knowledge from the Josephitic tribes. Wow, maybe I just made a word. The, jo the Joseph tribes, Ephraim and Manasseh, and live in security. So back to the story of Deborah, who is mentioned here. There seems to be a superfluous sentence in chapter 4. Chapter 4, I am. you can hear me rifling through the pages. Chapter 4, it's even in parentheses in this Bible, this Tanakh. 11. Haber the Canaanite had become separate from the Canaanites, from the children of Hobab, father-in-law of Moses, and pitched his tents as far as the plains of Za'ananim, near Kadesh. So he was here in the story, up north. It mentions it, yes, because Ya'el, Ja'el was going to be here. But she... Here is a paradigm of how Deborah is fixing up all the people who relate to the secular realm and women's victories. This is our first lesson in women's utilization of their unique skills for victory. Okay, let's go general and back to specific. Women have a unique place as leaders. As we'll speak about next week, men are supposed to take initiative. Women respect that and respond and come along with the program where there's a dual leadership. We shall have more details, God willing, in the next podcast. But what if men don't take initiative? Traditionally, women begin to take their own form of leadership or they cajole the men into doing it. Women begin to poison the evil leaders. Happened many times in history. It's a more subtle way to do it. If After all, who's making the food here? Um, who is... Who's um, helping peddle the wares? Who's fixing up the wares? Who is sewing the rugs together that you can hide knives in? Excuse me for being so violent, but we're talking about evil here. 
I recently, oh yeah, women, and women go on strike, intimacy strike, and the men get going real quick to fix society. I recently heard a mother say to a school board who is going to unnecessarily have harmful restrictions on children, we are the ones who fix your breaks, we make your food. Ha ha ha, there you go. So, you know, what happens here is Yael knows intimacy and sensitivity. When she seduces the powerful Sisra, she, it's not because she's a promiscuous woman. It's the opposite. Go back to Joseph. If you look at, at when Joseph reunites, no, if you look at when Jacob reunites with Esau, Esau, his brother, he has a procession of his wives and sons going in front to try to appease Esau, Esau. It says that Joseph is in front of Rachel. Why? Joseph is someone who understands beauty and sexuality, intimacy, so therefore he knows how to protect it. So Yael over here, she becomes praised because she utilizes the beauty and the intimacy in order to defeat this evil foe, not because she understands the secular realm. That's what's key here. And she becomes a hero along with um, Devorah. Her people moved to Israel, several places, in order to help unify the secular and the, and the religious, which is really one and the same. We elevate the physical world. It's all, if something's true, God put it here. It's not quote-unquote secular. That's just the parlance that my people use. So she's glorified here for using her skills for the best, and explains the extra little sentences that do not need parentheses. And remember, in the chapter about Deborah, Devorah, her behavior was a Tiferis, was a huge symbolism that was the new media news cycle for that era. So when Yael, Jael, who is a very appropriate woman, modest, murders, no, kills. She kills, there's a difference, the evil Sisera. It has a huge message. On Sisera's chariots were images of prostitutes, and that got him excited for battle. That excitement for battle has to do with the wrong kind of intimacy and violence that they used to engage in. So when Yael illuminates him, you can imagine a woman who converted. Oh, at, at, she actually wasn't Jewish according to the sources I follow, but possibly could have been Jewish. But if she she wasn't Jewish, but some of her ancestors converted, her tribe was one that was more religious and modest. She comes along and she eliminates someone who was extremely inappropriate. He was a nasty individual, whoring and being a John all the time. That is a message about sexual morality, that's the Tiferet. That is the symbolism for the news of the day. Shoftim, laws in our society, idolatry is alive and well. It's not just a golden statue and a silly altar. It has to do with self-restraint. Self it has to do with abrogation of responsibility. It has to do with believing in one God unified and having self-control. And the lessons for then are the lessons for today. I hope you have a wonderful, blessed day.